in this model, you have the abstract thing here, either the outcome or the aspiration, and then you come up with a whole host of behaviors that could lead to that. And you don't have to do all of them. You do the ones that you want to do the most, the ones that you're capable of doing, and then also the ones that will have the biggest impact. And so this is part of the system that I call behavior design, that for any outcome or aspiration that you have, there's a systematic way step-by-step to figure out what is the best behavior habit or set of habits. And then you use this, once you know what the behaviors or habits are, then you use this to make them practical, to design them into your life. So you don't guess at behaviors. There's a systematic way to figure out the best ones. And I call those golden behaviors or golden habits. Those are the best matches for you. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is a replay of a monthly webinar I hosted on behalf of CrossFit Health with Dr. BJ Fogg and Stephanie Weldy on tiny habits. Now, before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get to the episode. Welcome again to our CrossFit Health March webinar. I am so excited to be joined today by Dr. BJ Fogg and Stephanie Weldy, and we are going to be talking about tiny habits. So I'll start with an intro. I'll just give you some background on both BJ and Stephanie. Then I'll ask them some questions for about 30 minutes or so. And the last half of the webinar, we'll be taking all of your questions. So as we go through anything that pops into your mind, anything that you want to hear these experts talk about, please feel free to drop those questions in the Q&A box. And then I will present those questions to our panelists. So starting off, we've got Dr. BJ Fogg. He is a behavior scientist at Stanford, where he directs research and innovation at the Behavior Design Lab. He also teaches his models and methods in graduate seminars. And on the industry side, BJ trains innovators to use his work so they can create solutions that influence behavior. Focus areas include health, sustainability, financial well-being, learning, productivity, and engagement. And his early work on persuasive technology has informed the design of products that millions love and use every day, including Instagram, which one of his students co-founded. He also created a new method of habit formation called Tiny Habits. And using his online platform and email, he's personally coached over 60,000 people in creating habits. Fortune Magazine named him a new guru you should know for his insights about mobile and social networks. That is probably the coolest title ever. (laughs) New guru you should know. Um, And uh, I do have to say, I first found your work, BJ, when I was in med school and I was researching behavior Mm. change. And I found a video you had done. Um, with your model and talking about the X and Y axes, which we'll get into later. Um, And it was just such a simple way for me to start wrapping my head around it and thinking about how to work with patients. So excited to be able to talk to you today. And we also have, we are excited to be joined by Stephanie Weldy, who's an expert in the intersection of behavior design and employee health. Um, She spent a decade leading wellness programs and manages operations and partnerships for BJ, working alongside 
Dr. Fogg, Stanford University behavior scientist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Tiny Habits, which is BJ here with us. Um, she supports his work and in industry collaborating with key partners, championing all aspects of project management and partnering with him to teach and apply behavior design to help people to be healthier and happier. Um, she previously led comprehensive well-being programs in higher education, nonprofit, and government settings, and she has a master's degree in education and community health and is a certified well coach and tiny habits coach. So thank you so much. And also not in your formal bio is that Stephanie is actively doing CrossFit and just did the open workout like many of us last weekend. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, I'm super happy to be here. And I love the fact that both of you have done CrossFit. So, you know, I know BJ, you've done CrossFit in the past. Stephanie, you're doing CrossFit now. And I think that is very exciting and the ability for us to have a conversation that especially relates to our CrossFit audience. So I'd love to just hear for both of you how you got into CrossFit and maybe what your experience has been like there just to kick us off. Stephanie, you start. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. I have a great story. My, um, so my stepdad is one of seven siblings and his sister, I was visiting his sister and she's maybe in her early sixties at the time. And she said, Hey, do you want to go to my gym with me? And I'm just like, okay, yeah, I'm traveling. I love to go work out when I travel. So I go with my aunt to her 5am CrossFit class. This is in Galveston, oh, wow. Texas. <laughs> it's quite and the way to start. So good, right? So it's like I think our alarm was 4:30. We're working out at five. I'm it's completely pitch black outside. And I had really not been exposed to a CrossFit environment. I knew of it from industry, from the industry space, but they had me hooked with farm carries and they scaled. I'm pretty sure they were doing box jumps, but I was doing box step up step ups, and they were so encouraging and like yeah, it was a really hard workout, but I felt so good about it. And I'm like, <laughs> if Aunt Sue can do this, I'm going to try it. So when I got back to where I was living at the time, that was in California, um, looked up a local box in my neighborhood and got started there. So yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I don't know how many people can say their first CrossFit workout was at 5 a.m. That's pretty so incredible. good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And how about you, BJ? Well, on on my side, I'd heard about CrossFit for a long time. And a lot of my friends uh, were CrossFitters and were doing that. And finally, I thought, well, let me go try it. I was a little bit scared. Um, The coach was great. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I did. But I had two rules. One, have fun. Two, don't get hurt. (laughs) <laughs> and I just followed those two rules. And that really helped me. It helped me calibrate. I'm 58 now. And so that really helped me calibrate and not try to compete with the 22-year-olds and that kind of thing. It was like, am I having fun? And am I making sure I'm trying not to get hurt? And that mm-hmm. was a great guide for me. That's great. I love those rules. Rules to live by. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd also love to know, you know, you both are so, you know, have dedicated really your lives to habit change in so many different areas, but I'd love to know how you first became interested in this area. And if there was a specific moment or what it was about habit change that made you really passionate about it or realize how powerful it could be. Yeah, I think there's two answers. The first answer is I just grew up in a family and an environment 
that emphasize optimizing yourself. And even as a kid, my dad would go to the gym and would go, my brother and I would go with him early in the morning. And so there was that tradition. And then also optimizing yourself in other ways. But then fast forward to probably my mid 40s, I started gaining weight. I, I felt like I was uh, losing muscle mass, et cetera. And I just thought, man, BJ, if you don't change now, you're not going to be able to turn the corner, which by the way is not true, but I felt like it was at the time. Mm -hmm. So I got, I looked at my own work, my own model and said, and figured out there's a great way to create habits. So I hacked my own behavior over the course of the year and figured out what I now call the tiny habits method. But I think that was, like I said, in response to me feeling like I was slipping and then if I didn't find a solution, then I would just never get back to the kind of vitality that I wanted to have in my life. That's amazing. So you would already, you know, you were already doing the research and applying it in different areas, but when it became personal to your own health is when you started applying it in that, in that domain. Yeah. My, my research at Stanford typically was looking at uh, how companies could create products and services to influence behavior for good. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about personal change. Frankly, within the academy, self-help and those kinds of things are not prestigious things to be studying. You think they should be, but they're not. And you don't really get encouraged or rewarded for things that sound like self-help. And so you do basic research, basic science, or you apply it to industry problems or population size problems. But then when I realized or just had the sense that, man, I got to figure out how to help myself be healthier. Then that actually pivoted all the work in my lab and everything since then. So we shifted away from what we'd been doing. And ever since we've been focusing on human health and human happiness in a very self-help kind, kind of way and not apologizing for it. And now with the last two years and now with the such uh, needs in the world, um, yeah, nobody, at least I don't get the feeling that it's a second class thing to be studying because even within Stanford students, there are so many pressing needs in terms of their mental health and broader aspects of wellness. So we're really focusing on that now. And I'm really happy to be doing that. Absolutely. And so powerful. I mean, for one person to be, it can be so life-changing and then to be able to, to help so many people with these habits is is really incredible. How about you, Stephanie? How did you get into this work or why, why did you decide to really dedicate your career towards it? Yeah, well, so my experience is a little bit different. I was in the employee health, employee well-being space. So I was sitting in a strategic HR role, leading employee wellness programs alongside like benefits managers and people who are deciding benefits design for an employee population. And I was finishing my master's program and I went to uh, a training basically that BJ did. BJ teaches and I teach with BJ for industry leaders, how human behavior works and how to apply that to your products and services. But, you know, this was like 2012, 2013, I was in the training and I was, my mind was just blown <laughs> learning these models and methods because when I got back to my office on Monday, I was supposed to be designing employee well-being programs. And this was so practical. I could use what I learned on that Thursday or Friday and apply it right away, probably on the cocktail napkin on the plane ride home. You know, I'm <laughs> my wheels were already turning. So at that point, I 
um, started to uh, learn and, and apply the system of behavior design. That's the broader umbrella for BJ's work. And, um, you know, fast forward a couple years later, I moved out to California and that's when I connected with BJ and have been working with him ever since helping people who are designing products and services apply this system to the work they're doing. So yeah, it was both personal because I felt like, you know, my aspiration at the end of the day is to help connect people to resources that better and serve their life and their health. Um, so that's kind of like my personal work aspiration, but it fits so lockstep with what BJ is doing in terms of helping bring people products and services that make them healthier and happier. And it's just kind of a, a win-win. So it's been a great experience. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure if BJ just dropped off cause I don't see him up here anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> I know we can carry on until he comes back. Yes. Um, um, I was, I would love to start diving into the model a bit. And so hopefully he'll be back to talk about that. I know he has some great diagrams with him. Um, but in terms of, you mentioned with, for you that it was incredibly simple. Oh, perfect timing for, <laughs> for re-entry. We're just about, I was just about to start asking you about the fog behavior model. So, yes. um, so, you know, Stephanie mentioned how for her, it was so mind blowing because it was so simple. And I think that is what I have seen and taken away too, is that you make it so simple and break it down into such easy steps to understand one, just how behavior works, but then two, how to actually apply this in a framework in your life. So let's just start with the model. Um, can you talk a little bit about what findings from your research um, helped you to develop this model and, and what ex exactly it is? Yeah, so the model in its simplest form looks like this. Behavior, the B, happens when three things come together at the same moment. Motivation to do the behavior, ability to behavior, and a prompt, something that says do this now. And if any one of those is missing, the behavior won't happen. Now, behavior is the broad category. A subset is habits. So this applies to habits. This applies to stopping behavior. So if you want to stop a behavior, you remove motivation or remove ability or remove prompt. Any behavior type is characterized by this. And it took a few years for the pieces to fall in place for this model. And the last piece finally fell into place in 2007. And it's like, bam, there it is. And at first, I have to admit, Julie, that I thought, well, could it really be this simple that this describes <laughs> all behavior types? And it turns out the answer is yes that um, each one of these components matters for the behavior to happen. And one way to think about it would be like fire. You know, for fire to happen, you need fuel and you need air and you need a spark. And without any one of those things, a fire won't happen. So which one's most important? Well, they all three are. And that's how to think about this. And you can, um, this then led to a bunch of other innovations building on top of this. So having the right, model to describe human behavior. And, and there's a three-dimensional version of it. Boom, that looks like this. We may or may not get here. But this three-dimensional version, two-dimensional version, <laughs> um, <laughs> helps show there's a relationship between motivation and ability. And I'll just give one implication. The harder the behavior is, the more motivation you need to do it. And if your motivation drops, you no longer can do hard behaviors. 
And this was one thing about CrossFit that fascinated me when I would go and uh, do a workout. And man, they work you hard, but they had ways of motivating you in the moment to just push yourself to the extreme. And I just remember so many times coming home from CrossFit and I was exhausted, but I'd be cracking up. It's like, oh my gosh, I am so tired, but I'm so amused with how hard they were able to push me and everybody else. In other words, they got us to do really hard things because they have ways of amping up the motivation. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, but these are the components of all behavior types, including everything that you're doing in CrossFit. That's amazing. And that's such a great way to think about it. We often say the hardest part is just getting in the door. And once you get in the door, that motivation is going to come because you've got coaches, you've got other people, you've got community. Um, And so that's sometimes the prompt to get yourself in the door is sometimes the hardest part. Yeah. And and there's ways you can trick yourself to, I mean, we're going to get, I don't know how practical you want us to be, but yeah, let's go for it. You might think, oh my gosh, if I go to CrossFit today, I'm really busy and and then you just say, okay, I'm just going to go, but I'm going to take it easy. Okay. So you say, I'm just going (laughs) to show up and I'm just going to coast. Okay. (laughs) And then you get there and like, okay. And they have you run a bit or uh, (laughs) do the aerosol or whatever warmups you're doing. And then as you get going, you find you're no longer coasting and that's great, right? (laughs) So you can trick yourself to going if you're resisting. Um, And sometimes you will just coast and that's fine and congratulate yourself that you showed up. Uh, But other times, you know, the the community and the way it's structured it, even physiologically, what happens for me is at about minute three and a half. So let's say I'm on the aerosol warming up and I'm like, ah, this is terrible. You know, just warming up. At three minutes, I'm still like, I'm not going to work hard. By four minutes, it's changed for me. I just know (laughs) there's something that shifts between three minutes and four (laughs) minutes, and I have a different attitude. I'm more motivated at four minutes. I don't know if that works for others, but yeah, it's how. It's so great. And I think I can relate to that too. You get, I've definitely been in an an AMRAP and thinking, okay, I'm just going to do, you know, one round every two, three minutes, whatever, depending on the workout. And then, Next thing you know, you think, oh, I think I can push it a little harder. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get yeah. five rounds in the workout or six, you know. And so it's just those little tiny things, or the person next to me is going a little bit faster. Maybe I can catch up with them. There's so many little things that, like you said, provide motivation, which is really cool. Well, and I have to confess this: there was a time I stopped going to the box because I was concerned about getting the flu. And you know, when I teach my stuff, there's really not like replacement. Stephanie teaches Mm -hmm. with me. She could now replace me. But at the time I didn't have (laughs) Stephanie. Um, So I built my own little CrossFit thing in my garage, Mm -hmm. you know, along with the air salt and the, as much as I could, the wall ball walls and everything. But guess what? I never worked in my own garage as hard as I did at the box. I just never matched the same level of intensity. And I knew why. Um, But there is something about the being immersed in that environment with other people and the coaches and the way the workouts are designed that really do amp up your motivation, which then gets you to do harder things. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. A great example. And I'd love to talk about, because I think probably all of us listening are, you know, we're bought in, we're doing CrossFit, but how can we take 
this principle and what we experience in the CrossFit gym by getting ourselves into the box? And how can we apply that maybe to other areas of our life, whether it's, you know, other health habits, sleep, nutrition, um, you know, other habits, even outside of health. And so maybe we could talk about a couple of examples and how we play with this motivation ability um, factor to, um, to help us do the behaviors that we're trying to do. Wow. I mean, there's a lot of ways that it applies. I'm going to give an answer on two levels and Stephanie, you can chime in or answer, um, add to it. One is um, use, go from strengths to strengths. Okay. So if you're listening to this, you're probably pretty good at the physical, the workout thing, but you may not be good at balancing your budget or habits of spending or habits of relationship and so on. And that's okay. Nobody's great at everything, but look at what's helping you succeed in CrossFit or helping you succeed where you're feeling successful and then generalize those techniques out to areas where you're not as strong. So don't beat yourself up for like you don't really have habits of close relationships or um, you know, habits of productivity or things like that. But generalize what you've learned in CrossFit and nutrition to other areas, um, because the way habits form are the same, no matter what domain. Um, that would be answer level number one, which is hopefully encouraging that if you're able to do it physically, and I think most people here have, you can do it in other domains. So much of the world is challenged with what you've mastered, okay? So just recognize <laughs> that you do have that ability. You just need to reapply it. The next level doesn't have to do, the other answer doesn't have so much to do with habits, but again, a kind of a, a, a trick or a hack that I like to use. And I haven't studied this scientifically, so this is more of a technique, whereas the habit stuff and, and this, we could go into what's behind it. Um, there are those times. So the tiny habits method is make the habit really easy, design it into your life, do as much as you want. I mean, it's not two push-ups, three push. It's on day one, you could do 20 or 30 push-ups if that's what you want to do, but you set the bar low. On the days when your motivation is low, then only do two push-ups or three squats. You know, just check the box and move on. Mm -hmm. I'm going to the other side where you have to get yourself to do hard things. Okay. Not habits, but there's a one-time hard thing you have to do. It could be make a presentation. It could be have a difficult discussion with somebody, it, you know, and you can draw on your success with CrossFit and think this. And I, I say this out loud, EJ, you've trained for this moment. You can do it. Okay. And I do feel like eating a certain way and being physically active and pushing yourself in that way is training to step up for those hard moments in your life. So just tell yourself, you've, you've trained for this moment. Bam, you can do it. And it's a way to pop your motivation up in the moment. So then you can do that hard thing that may have nothing to do with physical fitness. It may have to do with relationships or a big talk and so on. So that would be a couple ways I'd look at it. Um, Stephanie, uh, do you want to correct anything I've said? <laughs> <or add to> <laughs> 
No, I don't want to correct, but I want to add to it. And I think this helps people see how you take those strengths from your CrossFit experience into other areas of your life that you want to be strong. So here's an example from my real life. Sometimes when I close the door at night and I say good night, I have two kids under the age of three, well, three and one. And I close the door. I think, oh, it's been such a hard day. Like there's this moment of like, deep sigh. I think it's called like sweet relief and also (laughs) me time. You know, there's this moment. And in that moment, instead of criticizing myself, like I got to go clean the kitchen and there's this, this list of things I need to do. I try and take a moment to be like, you're such a good mom. Like I'm not a perfect mom. I'm really not trying to be a perfect mom or parent, but use that moment of like, I just finished something that is kind of exhausting, like parenting and every day, the daily grind. We all have this moment in our day. I use it to say, you're such a good mom. And then that can sometimes even act as an anchor to like set me up for the next behavior I want to do. So what I don't want to do is go downstairs and make like a sweet treat or like whatever. So I'll hit the kettle and that's my moment of like, okay, I'm going to do something relaxing for me. That's a a specific behavior I can do right away that I know kind of helps me de-stress. And so I guess what I'm pointing out here, BJ, is like taking those strengths, looking at other areas of your life where you want to be a great parent, you want to be a great partner, you want to step up in your career. And yeah, those things are kind of up in the cloud. They're just sort of these abstractions. But then you can start to think about, and BJ teaches this model, it's called the swarm of behaviors model. You can take any abstraction, like be a better parent, eat clean, whatever the abstraction is. Thank you to my teaching assistant. (laughs) You can come up with specific behaviors. BJ, do you want to point it out so that you're in the frame and just describe it a little bit? Okay, so the abstract thing is here. Stephanie, do you want to give the example? Uh, Be a better parent or eat clean. One of those two. Okay, let's go be be a better parent. So one is, one specific behavior would be that leads to that. Uh, tell Tell myself out loud, I'm a good mom when I close the door at night. Good. Uh, read your kids a story before they go to bed. Uh, help my pa- uh, help my kids learn how to speak kindly to other people. Write thank you notes to any with your kids to anybody that gives them presents. Take my kids to the CrossFit box with me one time. Okay, <laughs> successfully last week. So you get the idea. So this is a model in behavior design. And Stephanie works with me in teaching this to industry innovators who are creating products and services to change behavior. But in this model, you have the abstract thing here, either the outcome or the aspiration. And then you come up with a whole host of behaviors that could lead to that. And you don't have to do all of them. You do the ones that you want to do the most, the ones that you're capable of doing. And then also the ones that will have the biggest impact. And so this is part of the system that I call behavior design. Now, for any outcome or aspiration that you have, there's a systematic way, step by step, to figure out what is the best behavior habit or set of habits. And then you use this. Once you know what the behaviors or habits are, then you use this to make them practical, to design them into your life. So you don't guess at behaviors, there's a systematic way to figure out the best ones. And I call those golden behaviors or golden habits. Those are the best matches for you. 
I love that. And I just want to pick up on sort of the difference there between the aspiration and the actual behaviors and the fact that I think so many of us maybe get frustrated because we have aspirations, but we don't spend time thinking about what those actual behaviors, those small steps are and honing in, like you said, on the ones that we're most likely to do that are going to have the biggest impact that we're able to do. Let me give an example. Um, In my life, I discovered probably 20 years ago that being close to nature was really important to me, connecting to nature. In fact, I've, at Stanford, I teach a different class every year, and I have for over 20 years. Every year, different class. The only class I've repeated is a class about helping people connect to nature. So it's that important. Mm-hmm. So connecting to nature is something abstract. It's within the cloud. And so for me, I could figure out, well, how do I connect to nature? Grow a garden, a vegetable garden grow a flower garden, move to Maui, surf every morning, have a screensaver on my phone, be a shot of nature, et cetera. All these things you can do. And then um, by doing, you don't have to do them all, but by doing a set of those, at least for me, it's providing the the massive benefits that connecting with nature has in my life. And so I feel like for that, very important thing that's very abstract. I've been able to design for that really well in my life. And, um, you know, and, it, and the way to connect to nature is different for every person. Not everybody can move to Maui or surf, but certainly you can um, open windows, take um, grow herbs in your kitchen, have the screensaver be um, some shot of nature you enjoy, et cetera. I love that. I also love how you know, this whole process, your behavior design process is really fun because I think for so many of us, these behaviors, we tend to get really negative and down on ourselves when we're not doing the things that we want to do. But you really, you talk a lot about approaching it with curiosity and creating, you know, if you're, if you're not successful in this behavior, it's a design flaw. So let's go back to the process and let's reiterate or iterate again and, and figure out why things didn't go the way you expected. Um, And picking up on what Stephanie said earlier too, about, you know, I'm, I'm such a great mom. I, I love how you incorporate emotion and how important emotion is and positive emotion in all kinds of different ways and how that can be such a change for, um, making behaviors easier. So can you talk a little bit about that? Just why emotion is so important and how that really helps, um, helps people to actually implement these behaviors. Yeah, I'll be brief. And Stephanie, you can add examples or more to this. When it comes to habits, the role of emotions is to take a behavior that's not automatic and turn it into an automatic behavior. In other words, a habit. It's emotions that create habits. It's not repetition. Don't be misled by that. And if you double click on when people are saying it's repetition, if you really read the research, that's not what the research is saying, Mm -hmm. but it's emotions. When you do a behavior and feel successful, then your brain takes note and it makes that behavior more likely in the future. So one, emotions create habits. And the better you are at feeling a positive emotion as you're doing a new behavior, the faster that habit will wire in. You can give yourself a superpower by getting really good at self-reinforcing in the moment. You see this, watch Stephen Curry. Um, as he takes and makes a good shot, he is celebrating in all sorts of fun and interesting ways, right? I don't think that's an accident. I don't think it's just for the camera. 
what's made Ste- Stephen Curry great is his ability to say, good for me, kind of thing. You know, and we see that. And you saw it in the Winter Olympics and so on. The other thing emotions do, of course, is it increases our motivation to do it again. And that's kind of obvious. The thing that's not obvious is the important role of emotions in rewiring our circuitry and creating habits. Stephanie, what would you add to that? I'll add this. I Even I, who teach this every day, I keep this on my desk. Emotions create habits. Right? <laughs> that's awesome. I only have a few post-it notes, but this is one of them. Because the headline here, and you can read about it in Tiny Habit, is that we change best by feeling good and not by feeling bad. And let me give you a couple examples of where this is already happening in your life. When you finish a workout at the box, someone always comes up to you to do what? High five. <laughs> bump, bump. High five. I mean, I'd love, Julie, I'd love for you to be the person giving me the high five, but somebody's always there for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. The other day I brought my open t-shirt, shout out to my team. Okay. Oh, I, brought my open t-shirt. I show up in my t-shirt and a guy I'd never talked to before that I'd worked out with like a couple of days prior. He came up to me and he's like, I was like, Ooh, I'm feeling nervous. You know, I'm like, Oh, just getting excited. <laughs> it was like excited, but nervous. And he comes up to me and he's like, I saw you work out the other day. You are so strong. And all right. Wow. Did I, I mean, yeah, I was excited about the workout, but the feeling he gave me in that moment was like, I've never talked to him before. He noticed I was strong. He took this moment to tell me, and now I'm like, ready to lift the weight, right? I'm ready for those wall (laughs) walks that I'd probably never done before. So the moment and the feeling of success is what helps you step up to do future challenges, whether it's at the box, maybe it's that having a challenging conversation, maybe it's figuring out how do I rebuild my family's budget, whatever it is, it's that feeling of success that helps you continue to do that behavior and other behaviors step up to that are in alignment with the identity you're creating for yourself. But that's a small and then a bigger example. BJ, to you, I see the was my cue. Apparently, Stephanie, to show this. It's so important. <laughs> There's only two maxims. And one of them is help people feel successful. So if you're shooting for lasting change in yourself or others, there's two things. And one of them, if it's for yourself, you modify this. Help yourself feel successful. In other words, don't beat yourself up. Don't just look at your shortcomings. Don't say, I wasn't, you know, number one on this row or whatever. You benefit by helping yourself feel successful. And Stephanie, I love your example. Help other people feel successful, whether it's uh, a CrossFit buddy or a workmate or a kid, because that's what one, wires in the habits and two, increases their motivation to want to do it and, like Stephanie said, step up and do it even bigger and better in the future. I love that. And I love, I have to say, since reading the book, I've been incorporating this a lot more and just telling myself throughout the day, like, you're doing a great job, Julie, and keep it up and big win. And um, I love, VJ your Maui habit too. It's going to be a great day first thing in the morning. It's a great way to start the day. Yeah. Yeah, every day. And this, I give a TED talk on it, so I won't go into detail. Uh, but the tiny habit recipe goes like this. After my feet touch the floor in the morning, I will say, it's going to be a great day. Seven words. And it's the only, so the tiny habits book is a system, a process for creating habits. 
And I don't tell people what habits to form because it's different for different people. But the Maui habit is the only one in the book. I say, yes, create this habit. And then everything else in the book is to create whatever else habit, whatever habit you want. And um, it's interesting. I live half time in Maui and during the pandemic, almost full time. And so when I say the Maui habit in Maui, it's kind of a funny moment. It's like, it's going to be a great day. I said it this morning and I thought of this and it's like, what a great opportunity to connect and share and do this with Stephanie. And uh, yeah, terrific. So that, you know, seven words, it's going to be a great day. That's awesome. So, so simple, but can make such a big difference. Well, I know, um, I would love to get some audience questions here. So we're going to shift into some Q and a. So if you're listening and you have questions, please feel free to write those in the Q and a box so I can present them to BJ and Stephanie. Um, and also just as a quick disclaimer, um, that CrossFit's not offering any medical advice here. We're not providing medical recommendations. I think that goes without saying, but just to reiterate. Um, so our first question is from Michelle Miller, and she says, what tips do you have for supporting behavior change in others? So other than um, celebrating with them, uh, anything else that you can do to help support behavior change in others? Let's see. I, I'm happy to, to, to speak to it. And then BJ can jump in here in a moment. Um, so fog maxim number one that was not on the poster is help people do what they already want to do. So there's another poster with those words on it. And when it comes to helping design for change for others, that's where you want to start. So every product and service that we use it helps us do what we already want to do, whether it be log our WAD, um, log in for our class, or budget our bank, etc. So, excuse me, bank budget for our balance and everything. So, in that case, you're using this help people do what they already want to do. And so, when you're thinking about your partner, oh, I told y'all there was a poster. BJ, do you want to see <laughs> this quickly? <laughs> no, keep going. You're doing awesome. Yeah. Okay. There's the poster that supports the, the quick phrase. But when it comes to designing change for other people, that's where you want to start. You're helping them figure out what are they naturally motivated to do. And so you're tapping into that. And then the way you design for it is, you know, is it a specific behavior? So that's the B in the model. And then is there a prompt? And is it easy to do? And in the behavior design system, the headline is this. For lasting change, ability matters more than motivation when it comes to design. So you want to help make sure that that behavior is easy enough to do. Let me give an example. Let's say you're trying to get your household to eat healthier, okay? And so you're thinking like, man, I'm, I'm on my game plan, but my spouse is like creeping in with some pizza and stuff that I don't want in this household. Like for me, it's like pizza and wine. It's like, eh. I know it's not going to be a great day tomorrow if I go there. <laughs> so instead, it's like, hey, honey, can you make sure that there's broccoli? I know my kids will eat broccoli, so we have it on the grocery list every week. 
And I always have like a kombucha and some herbal teas around because I think of those as fun drinks and they help me stay on my game plan. And so instead of trying to motivate my husband, like, don't bring that stuff into the house. And I really don't want you to, you know, order pizza tonight. It's just like, I do the behaviors I know I want to do. And I help him help our family be successful by prompting him is the broccoli and kombucha on the grocery list. Um, maybe an example of making it easier to do is I always am responsible for chopping the lettuce on Sundays. And so I always have like a salad starter and a healthy grain that's on my game plan. So instead of trying to motivate him, I think about how can I help make it easier? Like, would you just make a pot of quinoa for me? or so on, just add these things to the grocery list. And he's naturally motivated to do those things. So it's a match for that household eating healthier aspiration that I have. Um, BJ, other things you want to add? Yeah, I'll I'll give a personal example as well. Uh, So my partner is almost 20 years older than I am. And of course, I want him to age in a way that keeps him vital and just active and so on. But there's no way he's going to go to CrossFit. So it's useless for me to say, hey, go to CrossFit. Here's why you should go to CrossFit, because that's just not going to happen. It's just going to create conflict. So instead, help people do what they already want to do. Find out what physical activity my partner wants to do. And it started with walking. And then one day, he sat down on a rowing machine. I would have never guessed this. (laughs) <laughs> and he loved rowing. And I said, great, we're going to buy one. We bought one. We put it in our CrossFit gym. And that led to other row. We have one here in Maui, et cetera. So as soon, so help people do the exercises they want to do. And that may not be CrossFit, okay? But figure out what it is. It could be dancing. It could be roller skating. It could be swimming. It could be hiking. And then when my partner connected with rowing, which I never would have expected, I help him do that by encouraging him. And we put the money down and got a machine and brought it into our home gym in California and then our home here in Maui. And we have it here. And it's awesome. And he is doing great in terms of fitness. Rewind 15 years ago, I would have never expected that. And he he hates to miss a day of rowing and he hates to miss walking. So he is like, his identity has shifted. Uh, away from, I'm a person who does physical labor and therefore I don't need to work out. That's how we grew up, working hard and on a farm and all that kind of stuff to, I'm the kind of person who works out every day and he optimizes and that opens them up to trying other things like paddle boarding. And you know what? He might even try CrossFit now. If I were to say, let's go try CrossFit. So because his identity has changed and his confidence is built, now he might go with me to the box and give it a shot. I love that. Such a great illustration of how starting tiny can turn into something really big and a change in identity. And I think, like you said, the rower is in the garage. I'm sure if you, maybe he mix in some air squats or some push-ups or something with that rowing. And now he's doing a CrossFit workout. <laughs> You're right. And he came to me, the other, he started doing squats on a chair here and he came to me the other day and said, oh my gosh, this is like, he discovered squats. And I was like, and I just, <laughs> instead of saying, yeah, I've been telling you squats forever, you know, that doesn't fit helping him feel successful. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's like, yeah, that's great. Awesome. Tell me more. Right. Mm-hmm. So awesome. these two statements for your question, Julie, 
or for creating any product or service really are the key. Help people do what they already want to do, not what you want them to do, what they already want to do. And when it comes to physical activity, we've got dozens, if not hundreds of options, and then help them feel successful. Um, for example, the other day, my partner was rowing and he was number one in his age category. This was on hydro. And he's like, wow. oh my gosh, I'm number one. And after it, I get, you know, we celebrated that like big yeah. time because he doesn't think of himself as a competitive person. I am. I'm a competitive swimmer and I, I've long competed in things and he doesn't have that history. So when that, uh, what shall I say, that competitive spirit came out and mm -hmm. he called it out to me, bam, I, you know. I didn't say, Celebrate. well, finally, it was like, no, it was like, good for you. <laughs> High five. Yeah. That's awesome. And so important as you talk about that identity shift, um, like you said, going from, you know, I'm not the kind of person who exercises to I'm a, I'm a competitor is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, building on that, uh, we have a question from Cheryl Ann. She's asking about asking to expand on how to help behavior change. So she gives an example in cases where a member shows up every day. So maybe you're a trainer or a box owner, a member shows up every day. So they're always there, um, but they're always down on themselves. So how, mm. how would you approach that situation? I would, first of all, I would find the most positive, true thing you can say about that person in the moment, whether it's, as they arrive or during the workout or the end of the workout. And so you're not lying, but you're finding a true thing, the most positive true thing, and you're emphasizing that you're helping them see their success. That's part of helping people feel successful. Mm -hmm. Find the most positive true thing you can say. Now, the question and the issue of, especially CrossFitters, having really high standards and being self-critical that probably goes with the territory here. I'm just going to call that one out. Most people, most people make some tiny change or go walking one day and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't think I could do that. And they did it. I do think CrossFit um, selects for people that are competitive and have really high standards and have learned to push themselves through sort of guilt or maybe some negative ways. So I'm going to say this is a little bit harder. There's some relearning to do here. And, and I talk about the skills of change and tiny habits, and there are 22 skills of change. And one of those skills is allowing yourself to feel successful for even the tiniest of successes. That is a skill that probably a lot of people that are involved in CrossFit need to learn to do. Allow yourself to feel successful, even if it's a tiny success. Um, doesn't have to be a PR every day to be a success. No, no, exactly. <laughs> Stephanie, how would you, I mean, it, it's a, it's a pretty tough one because, and it's widespread, but I think there's a special case here with people involved in CrossFit because there is kind of a performance mentality and a con continual improvement mentality and so on. That's not like the general population. And um, yeah, I think CrossFitters, we can be hard on ourselves. Yeah, I will, I will just add this. <laughs> so if, if you think about this, a Stanford professor is giving you permission to <laughs> set the bar low, okay? It's not going to seem like a popular strategy in terms of like what you've been, what's been ingrained in our minds, but what we're calling out and, and is that 
we have a lot of ways to tell ourselves, whoa, you missed it. Like you didn't hit the PR, you didn't RX that open workout, you didn't X, Y, or Z. But we have a very short list of, you know, um, popular phrases we say to ourselves to say, you're awesome. Like you did such a good job, you know? And so if I'm a box owner, I'm looking for every way that I can help be a source of those success messages. We call it celebration in the tiny habits method, be a source of positive, be a source of success in my members' lives. And I'll tell you what, because this has been my experience for sure. You show up day in and day out, you're coaching others. You're better at this than anybody is going to be for themselves in a lot of ways. So being that source of success and delivering on that for your members is going to make them more loyal to you. They're going to be more engaged with everything you offer. And, you know, like I said, there, there's no shortage of, of negative messages we have for ourselves, but helping people cultivate these, they're going to see you as a winning part of their life, the better you do that. I so love that. And it seems, it might seem if you're, if you're not used to it, it might seem really silly at first. Like I know BJ, you talk about flossing one tooth, but even doing one little thing and celebrating it, then it's contagious for you, but it's also contagious to people around you. If you're doing it at the gym or you're congratulating other people for even the smallest things, like, you know, congrats, you showed up today. Congrats. You did two air squats in the warm up. whatever it is. It, it does start to change really your physiology and your outlook. There is so much, um, one of the things um, that I'm really focused on right now is to help people understand the importance of being the source of positivity for other people, because there's so much going on in the world, so much going on more locally, so much that social media makes us feel inferior, that we need to step up and be a source of positivity for people around us so they can start doing it for themselves. Because uh, people need this so bad right now. And in fact, of the three research projects in my research lab, two are along these lines. One is about how do we help people upregulate positive emotions? There's a ton of work done on negative emotions and how do you downregulate like guilt and shame and so on, but not very much of how do you upregulate your positive emotions? And so we're doing work there. And then the other project has to do with how do we help when people compare themselves to others, Stanford students comparing themselves to others mm-hmm. and seeing themselves unfavorably and then feeling bad or inferior because of that. So we want to shift their perspective away from grades and away from social comparison to other things. And one of the things we're working on is connectedness. Understand that your time here at Stanford isn't about getting great grades. It's figuring out who are going to be your lifelong, lifelong collaborators and develop those relationships now. And that's the way I see it. That's what you should be doing at Stanford. And doesn't care what, the, really doesn't matter that much what the grades are and so on. If you develop that um, set of collaborators that you know you like, like for example, Stephanie is one of mine. I know I like working with Stephanie. I have weaknesses. She fills in on those weaknesses. She has these great strengths I don't have and so on. Um, So the point here is that two of the three research projects at Stanford are 
focused on these kind of near-term problems that we're facing that have to do with negative emotions and shifting people so they process the world in more positive ways. I love that. That's amazing. And it's going to have such an impact. Our next question is from Megan. So this is a little bit more on the, the model. She says, if motivation, ability, and prompt are essential for creating behavior, what strategies do you use if motivation wanes before something becomes a habit? So how do you navigate that? Maybe waxing and waning motivation day to day. Bam. Thank you for the question, because that, that was the impetus behind the tiny habits method. Motivation high to low, hard to do, easy to do. So when your motivation sinks, so if you're above the action line when prompted, you do the behavior. So if it's hard to do, notice your motivation has to be way up here. And when your motivation sags, you don't do it. So if you make it easy, then you, your motivation can go up and down. It can't be zero but it can go up and down. So the strategy there is be really flexible on the difficulty, the size of your habit. And the days when you're just not feeling it, floss one tooth, count it good and go on, or do one or two push-ups, say good for me and go on. Then other days when your motivation is higher, you can do more. And some days you'll go, man, I'm going to go and just push myself to, to exhaustion on push-ups if your motivation's high. So it's having flexibility on the size of the habit day by day and mapping the size or the intensity of the behavior to your level of motivation in that moment. And I know that sounds really radical and odd, but that's how you stay super consistent. And if we go back to the fire analogy and those people who've camped and on, as long as you keep a spark going in your campfire, you can rekindle it easily. Mm. Don't let the spark go out. And that's the same thing with your habit. Even if it's teeny, one tooth, one push up, maybe two air squats, it's like you've kept the spark alive and you can build it back up. You just don't want to extinguish it. So you want to do keep that spark alive. Yeah. I love that that fire example because I think that's where, you know, if you go one day without doing it, two days without doing it, then it's easy to just say, oh, well, I've lost it. I'm, I'm, I'm out of this habit versus doing something like for me lately, it's yeah. been reading. And even if, even if I read a page or two, you know, at least I'm reading versus sitting down for, you know, 30 or 60 minutes. Yep. Right yeah. on. Yeah. Right on. And there's other ways to talk about this, but going back to kind of a mindset shift for cross people doing CrossFit is be okay with lowering the bar. And then when you overachieve, count the extra as extra credit. Okay. So my habit is after I pee, I do two pushups too. And I've been doing this for years. I can do way more than two pushups, but every time I do more than two, whether it's eight or 12 or 20 or more, I I count the extra as bonus every single time. Like, good for me, A plus, I'm the overachieving student. That is a mindset shift. And that's one that I think is important for people to learn to bring into your life. It may not matter so much in physical activity because a lot of people doing CrossFit have kind of nailed that, but it will matter in other areas of your life, okay? So um, develop that skill. Yeah, it is a skill. It's it's something that is natural for some, not for others, but everyone can develop a skill and get better at that. In other words, 
getting better at lowering your expectations, <laughs> which is not yeah. what you probably expected. It's counterintuitive, but it yeah. works works in your favor, right? Yeah, yeah. Like the ultimate outcome is probably much better when you come yes. at it from that mindset. Yep. Um, I have I have to ask a question for the two push-ups. Is this a you only do it at home or is this in, in public places too? Yeah. Well, no, I, I used to do it at Stanford and in hotel rooms and the Stanford thing got, I'd get the paper towels out and do it on the floor. And it was like, <laughs> that's just weird. If my colleagues walk in, I mean, I'm kind of a weirdo anyway, you know, with my stuffed animals. And so no, it's, and then in the hotel rooms, I thought about it. It's like, I used to get the towels down and it's like, no, no, just at home. It's at home during the day. Okay, so when Got I pee it. at night, I'm not doing push-ups. That's fair. But that does mean I'm doing push-ups like five times a day. I have an opportunity to do a lot or maybe just two. And I, I would say average, I average eight, eight, probably awesome. five times a day. So I'm doing 40 on average, but sometimes I'll do a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, we have a few minutes left. I'm going to go with Another question. This is from Caitlin. It's more of a specific question. How would you recommend using behaviors to combat sports burnout? I'm a junior college athlete and would love any tips, um, which I think this could probably be applied to a lot of other situations. I will give my answer and Stephanie, you give your answer. Cause I think there's various, I haven't studied this like systematically, like I've studied this and tiny habits. Um, just shift and go where your energy is. And I'm, I'm going to use music and playing musical instruments as an example. Uh, I got really into this kind of handpan called a bass drum. And I played that. And then I might interest faded and I went toward uh, these flutes that are enormous, made in Germany. Um, and I played that like crazy. And then I was like, ah, and I shifted to piano. Now, all of these are in my Zoom room here. And the fact that I haven't played that handpan or that massive flute in probably two months, I'm okay with because I'm playing the piano every morning for 30 or 40 minutes in the dark. It's the first thing I do. And I love it. I love it. Now the piano thing may fade and I'll shift back to something else and that's okay. And so my sense is that follow where you help yourself do what you already want to do. And if your interest shifts, go with that other interest. Um, if you're on a team and committed to a team, that's a little more challenging, but in general, follow, follow what you're interested in doing and do that like crazy. And don't feel bad that, Hey, I haven't played my massive flute in two months. So what I'm playing the piano and I'm loving it. Stephanie. Yeah. I, I kind of, I, I will say I haven't studied this sports burnout issue, but I'm on the same line of thinking as BJ is look for other places in your life where you can bring in delight and ease and kind of an unexpected fun. So something for me is like, I love to do art journal or painting. And I, I'm glad I brought this one because I think this is a good, a relevant message. It's like, enjoy. And when I made that, I made this for my mom for the holidays and long story, but it was nearby. And what, when I made that, I thought about being in a state of joy. So look for the opportunities within your sports career, within your teammates, within your social circle to say, hey, we spend a lot of time together. Let's try something out of the box. You know, let's 
all sit around and uh, when we do foam rollers, let's promise we're not going to talk about the game. Or when we are, you know, walking between classes, like really spending a focus on let's look at the different trees in the environment or something that breaks your brain away from your sports experience and helps you focus more on the things that give you joy. My guess is that's probably a good strategy for all of us to prevent a little bit of burnout, but especially if you're immersed in the team environment and there's pressure and structure and goals and metrics, that that might give you a sense of relief, whether it's music or arts or nature, that those things could be guides for more delight and to live in more joy in what you're doing. I love it. Big, big takeaway from today is lots of celebration, lots of joy, lots of positive emotions, set the bar low so you can celebrate all the time. Um, and feel really good about your behaviors. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we are just about out of time, but I would love to just um, share with listeners where people can find you, where they can learn more about tiny habits um, and follow your work, your research, the things that you all are, are putting out into the world. Yeah, I'll give three quick answers and Stephanie, you can supplement. Number one, for me in general, go to bjfog.com. That's kind of the dashboard for various things that I do. Uh, two, for Tiny Habits, there's a free five-day program and there's other things uh, at tinyhabits.com you can do and you get a real human coach. It's not me coaching you these days. We've trained coaches that do that and they're terrific. And then number three, if you're creating a product or service that relates to behavior change, that's a training that Stephanie and I do called Behavior Design Bootcamp. So join us for Bootcamp and Stephanie co-teaches. And that's for people not to change. Tiny habits is to change your own habits. The Bootcamp is if you're creating a product or service that relates to behavior change. And then there is a system for that, professional types of steps. And that's at bjfog.com as well. Stephanie. Yeah, so I'm going to recommend if you don't have it already, you definitely get the book. This is not repurposing old information in a new way. And this is BJ's breakthrough research and, um, so, excuse me, original research and sharing this breakthrough system. It's applied for individuals. So if you're coaching individuals or yeah. if you're designing for yourself, this is a terrific, I mean, it's like a manual. It's like the best, best thing. And even I reread it and there's new insights there. So definitely get a copy of this. And then in addition, if you're a coach or a trainer, if you're somebody who's helping others change your behavior, check out the Tiny Habits Coach Certification Program. And that will give you the um, skills and ability to use the Tiny Habits method in the, for, to help the people you're coaching every day. So there's a whole community there. They're incredible. Um, we work with some of the brightest minds in that community and we'd love, so that's tinyhabitsacademy.com. You can find out more about the coach certification. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, both so much. And I will vouch also for the book. I've read it. It's great. It makes it so simple and easy to apply. And if you listen to the audiobook, you get to hear a really cool story about BJ, which I just loved and was so inspiring. So check it out. If you're oh, which which you can find for, I, I got Audible to put that in front of the paywall. So there's a, a preface I recorded just for the audiobook. If you just go to audible.com and search, you can listen to it without buying the book. And Thank you uh, for Julie. I'll do a bit of a teaser. When I wrote that, and then just before I recorded it, I read that preface to my partner and I broke down crying three times. 
because I'm just really sharing. I'm being vulnerable there yeah. about challenges I faced. And that's why I negotiated with Audible, bring it in front of the paywall, because I didn't want to have to make people pay to help people understand that I've been there. I've been frustrated. I felt like my body was betraying me, et cetera. And the how tiny habits can help you through things like that. Mm-hmm. It was very powerful. I was tearing up listening to it too. So thank you for putting that out there and being so vulnerable with it. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you again, both of you so much for your time and for being here and for sharing all of your work and passion. Thank you guys for tuning in and for your great questions and um, join us next month. Uh, next month's webinar, we're going to be talking with Dr. Alessio Fasano on gluten and the microbiome. That's on April 22nd at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. So we'll see you then. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.